Welcome to MuggleCast, your Ford Anglia ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And today we're discussing chapters five and six of Chamber of Secrets. And to help us with today's discussion, we're joined by one of our longtime listeners and Slug Club supporters, Miranda. Hey, Miranda, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. It's nice to have you on. You're in the New York area, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I live in New Jersey now, but in the, the New York City metro area. Let's get your fandom ID. Sure. So my favorite book is Prisoner of Azkaban. My favorite movie is fittingly Chamber of Secrets. Hogwarts House is Hufflepuff. Ilvermorny House is Puckwudgie. My Patronus is a dapple gray mare, which is a lady horse. And my favorite chapter ever, this one was a little tough to choose for me, but it's probably Will or Won't, which is chapter three of Half-Blood Prince, where Dumbledore picks up Harry from the Dursleys. Okay, that's a good one. Another Half-Blood Prince chapter, too. Yeah, I feel like that whole first few chapters of Half-Blood Prince are just really, really great. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Love that your favorite movie is Chamber of Secrets, since you're on for a Chamber of Secrets chapter by chapter. And before we get into chapters five and six, we have a fun announcement. We will be hosting a live Ask MuggleCast Anything This upcoming weekend, Saturday, December 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern that everybody can watch live. We'll have links on social media. So check uh, social media out at that time. And Slug Club patrons will be able to be in the video conference with us, just like Miranda is today. And you all will be able to submit questions via a Q&A box, and then we'll answer those live. So Slug Club patrons will be the ones asking questions, but then everybody will be able to watch live. Again, this is Saturday, December 17th, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be really fun. It's going to be a way to round out 2022. So we hope to see everybody there. Again, check out MuggleCast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and TikTok for links to the live stream. Definitely TikTok. Can we link to the live stream on TikTok? I don't know. Twitter might be Chloe your best can do bet. anything. So revealing our age here. Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> okay. Duh. Duh, Andrew. With that said, let's jump into chapter five, Micah. Yeah. And of course, let's start with our seven word summary for The Whomping Willow. Eric, you're up, baby. Okay. The tree captures the Ford. Toughly. Uh, the tree captures the four toughly. Rar. <laughs> okay. One of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's, that's, okay. Anyway. <laughs> Those so, were seven It's words. accurate. It, it, it is. Yeah, it is accurate. <laughs> so this chapter starts off with the Weasleys and Harry scrambling out of the burrow to get to um, King's Cross Station to board the Hogwarts Express and I think we'll, we can talk a little bit later about some of the things that happened prior to them getting there. But what I wanted to start with was the blocked platform itself. So we know that all the other Weasleys have no trouble making it through the barrier at platform nine and three quarters. However, when Harry and Ron attempt to do it, they are blocked completely, right? So a couple of questions here. I was wondering... Was there ever an investigation into why the barrier didn't allow Ron and Harry through? 
Or once they get to Hogwarts, do the professors just assume that they were lying? You know, they wanted to take the car for a joyride, and this was their opportunity to do it. They let everybody else go first before them. Uh, and then they're like, yeah, let's go grab the car and fly to Hogwarts. I think you have to admit from a teacher's perspective, not having been there and having seen that the platform actually did seal itself and they couldn't get through, it sounds like a really convenient excuse for them to give. And I would probably think it was more likely if I were a teacher that these two were like, oh, man, we can go get the flying car. Everyone's gone. Right. I think that's the natural assumption that an adult is going to jump to in this circumstance. And I don't get the impression that there's ever any investigation into why this happened. Yeah. I don't get that impression either. It does seem very strange there wouldn't be an investigation because at least Dumbledore has to suspect that maybe something actually was going on. There has to be at least one person at Hogwarts at a level high up like Dumbledore saying, hmm, I think I'm inclined to believe, Harry, that it was blocked. So I should look into this. This does seem like a major issue. Well, that that also speaks to how many people were affected by this, because presumably as soon as Harry and Ron took off uh, to leave, Dobby was able to unseal it. Um, Really, the best thing for them to have done would have actually been to stay still um, on the platform, because eventually the parents who had just seen not just their parents, but everybody's parents who would be coming back into, you know, the muggle world into King's Cross would not have been able to get through either, or if they were able to, uh, at least Harry and Ron would be there right there to say, oh my God, like we couldn't get through. Um, It's funny because as you're a kid, everything seems to be so like happening to you and you need to react right away and all this like deliberation is not part of it. Um, So Harry and Ron just run off, but it's amazing to think of the alternatives. If they had just stayed where they were, they could explain things or a growing pile of adults would be able to corroborate their story, which is what they need more people to do uh, once they're in Snape's office. Right, because what happens is they they look like a bunch of nutcases to the other <laughs> people around them. And, and so that's what made me think about, because we always hear about instances of magic happening, right? There's this whole talk about how the car was seen, but nobody talks about how there were two kids that were trying multiple times to ram all of their luggage through a wall in the train station. That seems pretty odd. Um, and and plenty of people saw that, right? Hedwig is screaming at the top of her lungs, um, drawing a lot of attention. So speaking of poor Hedwig, we need like a Hedwig suffers count for these books. I Not know. only in the last chapter, she's last to be left like behind at Privet Drive. This time she's ramming into the platform. Once she hits the tree, it's this whole other thing. Yeah. I feel so bad for Hedwig. But Kind of to your point, Eric, I, I was wondering why Ron didn't wait to see if his parents came back through. He just assumes that they won't be able to. And to me, this is such irrational thinking. I get he's only 12 years old, but because it means that if his parents aren't coming back, that no parents or anybody who is on the platform to see their kids or their family off to Hogwarts were going to be able to get back. I mean, I was just thinking if they waited for Ron's parents, they have this car here, but couldn't his parents have driven them to the school in the car instead of flying it? And then they wouldn't be breaching (laughs) all of the the wizarding rules. I remember when I was 12, I mean, if I had a, a big problem, the natural thing would be to like call my mom and, and dad and 
you know, Ron's parents are right there. It might take a little bit for them to get off the platform, but there's nothing to think that they won't be coming back through the station. Yeah. To put myself in Ron's shoes, I'm just imagining a very urgent situation that they wanted to deal with immediately. I'm also thinking that maybe Ron's parents, other parents, they traditionally hang around on the platform after the train rolls out. And all the adults are just talking to each other. They're partying because all their kids are going <laughs> off to school. All their kids are away. <laughs> You're right. It's a raver. That's why the train, that's why it's so important the train leaves at exactly 11 o'clock a.m. Because at 11.01, it's drinks time, baby. Yeah, they hit the pub. It's brunch time. <laughs> Bottomless mimosas. <laughs> I could see them talking, sitting there talking for a while, and Ron doesn't know how long it's going to be, and they want to get to Hogwarts ASAP. So there's no consequence to missing the even the first day of school. That's the that's the thing that is like kind of the most overlooked here. They're not going to lose points for their house if they're late. They really couldn't get through the platform. Like surely people are late all the time and miss the train all the time. It's kind of crazy given Hogwarts security that they didn't know Harry and Ron were missing and delay the train until they could locate them. Right. And I mean, it it really doesn't matter if they get there, you know, the first night of term because they're not being sorted. There's nothing that first night that they really need to do. Um, I think this is just a consequence of them panicking and being extremely young. But I also think it's a consequence of Hermione not being there because if Hermione had been there, none of this would have happened. She would have put them in a logical headspace and said, guys, we need to wait for your parents to get back or we need to send an owl to Dumbledore or something. And I kind of love that we get this early on in the book because later on in this book, We also see Harry and Ron trying to figure out what's going on without Hermione being around. And even, you know, beyond her being petrified, she's the reason they figure it out anyway. So I kind of love that we get that little bit of an example of how these two operate without her. It's a really good point. And this this was kind of alluded to a little bit already, but aren't there alternate means of transportation to Hogwarts? believe it's in, I don't know if it's Order of the Phoenix that the night bus takes the Weasleys and Harry back to Hogwarts Yep. Uh, after the Christmas mm. holiday. So we do know that there are other ways to get to the school. It seems odd that, and I know they're 12. I think that's the piece that we have to keep going back to here yeah. because <laughs> yeah, yeah, if they were a little bit older, they would probably have a little bit more of a rational thought process. Yeah. I mean, I think they can't be the only students ever to have missed the train, right? This has to have happened. Hogwarts is a really old school. There must have been situations similar to this. Like in this case, the Weasleys were running off schedule. You know, they were running late getting to the train. They can't be the only ones to have ever missed it. So especially Ron, having grown up in the wizarding world, you'd think he would have kind of uh, the headspace to kind of think about some of these alternative means of transportation, like Maybe they could have taken a port key to Hogsmeade, even if they can't take it to Hogwarts directly. Or, you know, Harry literally just used flu powder for the first time. You think that might come to mind that that would be an option? 
Yeah, Hogsmeade is a hugely wizarding village. There's definitely flues uh, that you could just go to. And then it's a short walk. Um, plus, I think in the, you know, Hogwarts Express is a very nice way of um, making it convenient for a lot of people to get to Hogwarts. But it's by far, by no means the only way to get to Hogwarts. And even officially, I, th- I don't think every student is required to ride the train to Hogwarts. You can show up via the flu network or show up, you know, into Hogsmeade and then make the small walk over. It's also possible that the Hogwarts Express goes back to Hogwarts the next day for any latecomers. I mean, what is that train doing most of the time? Is it Lupin <laughs> that says that he's ridden the Hogwarts Express by himself? I think they can commission it. They can like uh, Hogwarts staff at some point can get that because don't they send the train to pick him up early or it's said that they might if they have to close the school in this book? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Maybe it's in another book that he he mentions it, but. Because obviously he's on the train with them at the start of A Prisoner of Azkaban, but I, I thought I remember him saying that at one point. So yeah, it's not like, I don't think the train just kind of chills in Hogsmeade for a couple months <laughs> doing nothing. Right. One other question that came to mind, do we think that the barrier actually closes off at 11 a.m.? Like strict, hard stop, regardless of, <laughs> we know there was house self interference here, but I'm wondering- does it just kind of close itself off that nobody else can get through after 11 a.m.? Oh, there's got to be at least a grace period, like a five to 10 minute grace period at the least. Yeah, they need to have their mimosas back there and come back around. <laughs> I, I, maybe maybe on other days that aren't September 1st, it might be sealed for protection or there might be a certain spell you have to enter or something. But yeah, I think it should be due, just due to general flexibility. It really should be open, if not all the time, then at least throughout this day. Because I think the other question is, why would it close off? Maybe wizards have some reason to go check out the platform on October 15th. Just, I don't know, yeah. to visit yeah. or something. Well, I think at one point, uh, the author did say there were portals there to other worlds or, or you know other ways of transporting to other places, maybe like a Magical Orient Express or something. But that might not be through nine and three quarters. There are other platforms that go different places. Do you think as readers though here we're meant to believe that there is really no foul play that it was just maybe they tried it a little bit too late and it this is more hmm. of a, a timing issue right now where we are in in the story? Well, since we already know that Dobby has been messing with Harry, I think you can guess that one possible reasonable explanation is that Dobby did cut off access. But I think it is also logical to assume that it just shut down because they were late. Right. Because as soon as they run into it, they look and they're like, oh, five, four, three, two, one, it's gone. Which, wow, that's cutting it short. But that's kind of why I like the brilliance of everybody forgets their stuff at the borough, uh, because that's what makes them so late. So I think there was an attempt in the writing to make it seem like they maybe just ran out of time um, because of how late they were showing up. Yeah. And I think that may have been my first reaction reading this for the first time. Then it would have been a Weasley road trip to uh, to Hogwarts. That would have been fun to uh, <laughs> to experience. Well, I think that um, I wanted to ask about about the barriers. So after Dobby sees that they are going to leave, but they're very clearly talking about taking the car. What do we think was going through Dobby's head? Like, oh, shit. <laughs> like they're going to they're still going to go to Hogwarts. Can we credit Dobby for maybe making the car reappear after it had appeared as it's taking off? Like, does he chase them out of the station and try and ruin their lives further? I know he's never held accountable for it, but or accused of it. But 
it seems like he might be really trying to still prevent them from going. Actually, I hadn't thought about that. That's kind of brilliant. Um, There are a lot of things that happen, you know, namely the car, you know, losing its ability to stay invisible, but also the engine failing that you can just chalk up to, well, this is kind of an old hunk of junk and they're just trying to push it to its limits. But (laughs) I mean, you could make an argument that Dobby is still trying to interfere in some way. I could even see Dobby thinking, hey, it's better if you crash in the middle of the English countryside than find yourself back at Hogwarts. (laughs) Yeah, it even goes to what we were talking about last week, where we asked the question, could Dobby have messed with the flu powder and the flu network to send Harry to Nocturne Alley instead of you know, ending up somewhere in in Diagon Alley. So I'm wondering how yeah. many more instances there may be of things like that where we you could put it on Dobby as opposed to just thinking that it was something else that that happened. So it's an interesting thought, but I feel like Dobby, once he saw that Harry and Ron didn't come through, I feel like he'd just be bouncing around platform nine and three quarters celebrating, thinking there's no way they'll ever make it to Hogwarts. Well, he's in the muggle world. He has to be be hidden because he sees what order everybody goes on the platform with. Like if Ron and Harry hadn't gone last, he would have sealed the barrier before they got through, but that wouldn't have solved things. It's just, it's very convenient that they're, that they're last, but he had to watch to make sure that he sealed it right on time because the rest of the family gets through fine. And is he invisible? Can house elves, He's gotta yeah, be. can house elves make themselves invisible? They have ways of making themselves <laughs> invisible without a cloak. Okay. So, so what if, the Weasleys had left and arrived at King's Cross earlier, do we think the same scenario would have played itself out? There would have been a lot more time to think about things and talk things over. Um, Yeah, I think it would have been way different Um, because if if even one other family member could not have gone through uh, the way Ron and Harry did, this wouldn't have happened. They would have just been like, no, you know, it doesn't even matter if we get there September 2nd. Hogsmeade has tons of flus. Let's just, you know, go do that. Or maybe there's a, a, a an open flu at the ministry or somewhere where they can go in London or Diagon Alley that um, takes them to Hogwarts, like for all the latecomers, for all the people who get held up. Yeah, I just keep coming back to there's there's got to be another way to get there. If because if the Hogwarts Express allegedly only runs once a year to Hogwarts or twice a year to, to Hogwarts, I, it, people are inevitably going to be late. There has to be other ways to get there. And amongst all those Weasleys, somebody's got to have a good idea in terms of how to get there alternatively. Right. Well, because we know parents come to the school. We've seen various students' yeah. parents at the school. So there's clearly a way for them to get there. Um, it it would have just been a much less eventful trip to Hogwarts if they had gotten to King's Cross early enough for them to figure out how to handle this instead of what ultimately ended up happening. But that wouldn't really set up the rest of the story very well, would it? So No, it wouldn't. <laughs> I think Dobby definitely would have had a much more difficult time kind of interfering if they had gotten there earlier, you know, other people were coming in behind them, it would have caused much more of a scene. Yeah, I could see Dobby trying to interfere with the Hogwarts Express. So say the family gets there. Like the Death Theater 
in in Deathly Hallows where he he puts his hand out. <laughs> He's just standing on the track holding his hand up. Um, no, I could see him trying to figure out a way to make the train break down. I could see him trying to figure out a way to make it so Harry couldn't get off the train at Hogwarts, kind of like Draco does in Half-Blood Prince, where he stuns him. I think he uses Petrificus Totalis, puts the invisibility cloak over him. Um, and I think Dobby would have gone to those lengths because it's very clear that he thinks all of those alternatives are preferable to letting Harry go back to Hogwarts. How about Dobby kidnaps the trolley lady and then he becomes the trolley lady and then feeds Harry some poisoned candy or something like that. Oh, wow. Can you imagine little Dobby like with his hands high pushing the car? He's like, I would rather kill you than let you go back to Hogwarts. I feel bad for the trolley lady. She didn't get to show out her claws for uh, truant people because they didn't get to like they didn't show up and then leave. They could they didn't even show up at all. It is interesting, though, you mentioned Draco, Laura, because I think Dobby would be limited in what he could do if Draco's around. True. He can't get caught. Oh, yeah. So he'd have to put on like the trolley lady's hair to really <laughs> assume the role and go undercover. I can see him doing that. <laughs> it is. Is it kind of an interesting connecting the threads moment looking at Dobby, who we know belongs to the Malfoy family at this point in time, trying to stop Harry from going back to Hogwarts? And then in book six, you know, Malfoy, his motivations are very different, but out of spite for what he perceives Harry to have done to his father and his family, tries to prevent him from going to Hogwarts as well. That's, that's a really great kind of connecting the threads. So we all agree that dry, uh, flying the car to school was the worst possible option? Yep. <laughs> what they yeah, did. I, I would say so. But it's exciting. You know, in in, in concept, um, we wouldn't have our MuggleCast album art if it weren't for the Flying Fort Anglia to school scene. That's true. All right. So uh, we're on our way now to Hogwarts. We've stolen the car. We're flying over the English countryside. And Andrew, I just wanted to say, your hands all sweaty. <laughs> you do it better than I do. So Your hands all sweaty. I haven't done that in a while, though. Your hands all oh sweaty. Come back. <laughs> I love that in the movie. By the way, since this is Miranda's favorite movie, like, isn't that a really unique way, like a cool thing they added? Yeah, I loved that line. That was great. I feel like there's just lots of little things in that movie. For the most part, it's true the book, which is, I think, why it's my favorite movie. But those types of little quips are just, just great. Well, like, where's the train? And then all of a sudden it's behind them. Hedwig's eyes go bright, like very wide. That reasonably could have happened. It's very funny. Very funny. Yeah, genuinely funny. Yeah. So we mentioned how, you know, the invisibility booster malfunctions, the engine starts to give out, um, and the car ends up, and we can talk a little bit about how it ends up in the Whomping Willow, but it ends up in the Whomping Willow on the school grounds. And I think, Eric, you mentioned this, um, whether it was on the last episode or, or one of the earlier chapter by chapters for Chamber of Secrets, but there's a lot of nods to herbology um, mm. that are made uh, throughout um, and we know how important herbology is uh, to this particular uh, book. Uh, so I thought perhaps, as I think you mentioned it when we were talking about denoming the garden. Yeah, yeah, very much so. An another kind of call out here. But I'm wondering, you can just drive a flying car onto Hogwarts grounds and there's no protections whatsoever. 
Um, or are we meant to believe that the magic of Hogwarts acted as a defense mechanism and guided the car into the Whomping Willow? I love this take. Or made it made it sputter <laughs> out, kind of like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the engine failure could have been part of it as well. I wouldn't chalk that part up to Hogwarts defense systems. I think we know that car is pretty old and Mr. Weasley might not have been the greatest mechanic <laughs> to uh, take care of that vehicle. Hey, now, I will take no slight on Arthur Weasley's name. Uh, he went to bat for his children and family last episode, so or last chapter. That's fair. The car is 30 years old. I just looked up uh, based on the one they used in the movie was from 1962, and this was set in 1992. So yeah, I, I usually chalk that up to the car being aged or Mr. Weasley maybe not thinking of everything, giving it a little bit extra life. Plus, did they need to refuel for gas? We, you know, we'll never know. Right. It was running for a while. I think that was one of the big problems here. Yeah, it's an old car. Well, and has ever anyone here ever driven an old car for a long distance? I mean, if you have, I think we've all had the experience of being like, come on, baby, like just a few more miles, you can <laughs> well, make it. And in the in the book, it's described like a low rattle that suddenly becomes louder. And you're like, yep, every car ever, you know, just slowly. It's stress test. Actually, it wasn't with an old car, but there's a lot of mountains out here. And mm -hmm. I used to have a, a Civic hybrid and it was from 2007. And those hybrids going up hills out here out in LA, like it was struggle busting. And I would be like you were just describing Laura, like, please, please. I had my foot on the freaking pedal trying to get it. I was like, it's gonna, it's gonna die. It's not gonna make it up this hill. That's how I felt <laughs> with my first car sometimes. My first car, it was a car I shared with my dad, but it was a 1995 Honda Civic. And so I learned how to drive in what 2006, 2007, somewhere around there. It's very hilly in the area where I live. And sometimes going up and down those hills, I would be like, oh, it's not going to make it. So I can identify with what they're feeling here. But getting back to security nightmarish. Wait, uh, hold on. I need to celebrate this real quick. Laura, I had like a 97 Civic before my 2007 Civic. Oh, wow. I don't think we ever bonded over this before. Yeah. What color was yours? Black. Oh, mine was silver. Okay. Oh, I was an emo kid. It's on brand. <laughs> Miranda, did you have a Civic too? No, I had a little Toyota Echo. Oh, I had an Oldsmobile. I feel like the only one. That's very you, Eric. <laughs> That's very you. Old soul. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Getting back to Hogwarts as a security nightmare. Um, you're right, Micah. The car is basically a projectile. This flying hunk of metal going at high speeds could do some damage to Hogwarts or anyone there. Uh, depending on where it landed, you shouldn't be able to just right there. I wonder if Hogwarts, if there's some kind of mechanism that blocks anything from coming in or if it has to be specifically contemplated. Like I could see Dumbledore being worried about people flying broomsticks into Hogwarts, but he probably never thought about someone flying in a car. Yeah, but I'm also wondering, like, there has to be some sort of alarm system that goes off. Yeah. If there's this random thing that's just like coming at the school nobody is aware of it. It, it and we know snape is the one that ultimately finds harry and ron but i i got to imagine that dumbledore has some kind of radar yeah, yeah and not just a random thing a very large very heavy it random hit the school thing it that could be run into the great hall yeah it could have hit some wizards it could have like you know crashed and killed some people so actually one thing that comes to mind is maybe because 
of the the daily profit reports of this flying car, maybe Dumbledore put together that like, hey, Harry and Ron are going to be coming through in a flying car. And so instead of having them hit this like invisible perimeter and crashing the car there, he he was kind of like, let's go ahead and lift some enchantments, let them fly the car in. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I could see that. But I I do like the idea of the car potentially being guided towards the Whomping Willow. I think we're led to believe that Ron pulls off an amazing feat at the last moment when it almost crashes into one of the castle walls. But thinking about momentum and how quickly they were moving, I I found myself doubting that that was just Ron's driving prowess in that moment. Um, so there has also to be some kind of... Yeah, there's some kind of magical protection. So, like, how well does he know how to drive, really? Right. Well, he's not He's not executing a three-point turn here. It's just kind of a right or left kind of situation. Yeah, I, I agree, Laura. Like, I really do like the idea of the school kind of having some kind of magic that's taking over here and guiding it. And, and maybe Dumbledore thinks, hey, this is enough punishment. We're going to throw the car uh, into the Whomping Willow and uh, let Harry and Ron uh, kind of fend for themselves, though. They have a uh, passenger with them that knows exactly how to tame the Whomping Willow, but <laughs> he chooses not to help. Thank you, Scabbers, for not doing anything. <laughs> hey, he still has to stay undercover. He's also probably thinking, here we go. Harry's going to die, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, straight towards that tree. Him and Dobby are going to go party after. Uh, yeah. Oh, very much so. <laughs> Bottomless mimosas for the Kill Harry Potter crew. <laughs> the Kill crew. I mean, I, we can get into this when we talk about Prisoner of Azkaban, but um, the Whomping Willow is a very unsafe tree to have on school grounds. Um, flying a car into it aside, you got to imagine that it can attack students uh, at random. Um, so that's just uh, something to keep in mind as as we get ahead in the series. Uh, I did want to connect some threads here, and Eric, I'm wondering if I could borrow your Snape voice, uh, because it is uh, it is Snape that finds Harry in both Chamber <laughs> of Secrets and Half-Blood so Prince, uh, and I pulled the quotes. <laughs> so can you uh, do you mind doing the honors? Yeah, I'll try. She says, so the train isn't good enough for the famous Harry Potter and his faithful sidekick, Weasley. Wanted to arrive with a bang, did we, boys? And I suppose you wanted to make an entrance, did you? And with no flying car available, you decided that bursting into the Great Hall halfway through the feast ought to create a dramatic effect. Bravo. Very well done. <laughs> that was well done. <laughs> yeah, and I love the flying car reference that Snape makes in Half-Blood Prince. That's a totally yeah. awesome catch. All right, so all said here, Snape goes to find Dumbledore and McGonagall. And as I was reading this, I was wondering... Do we feel like they get off a little bit too easy here? Uh, you know, McGonagall puts some fire in the hearth. She gives them an unlimited plate of sandwiches, some pumpkin juice. And on top of all of this, no points are taken from Gryffindor for what happens. Well, that's well Their reasoning reasoned. was sound. That's yeah. well reasoned. The term hadn't started yet. <laughs> so you can apparently do whatever you want outside a term and no consequences. Gryffindor probably had no points to begin with. Can you go negative with the hourglasses? You can in Jeopardy. Am I right, Micah? Yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a good point, Laura. I dare say McGonagall actually felt a little bad that they missed the opening 
feast. And maybe she thinks deep down that they really were blocked and there there was a tough situation for them to deal with. Because Ron does mention he wanted to see Jenny be sorted. And I can totally understand why yeah. he would want that. Like, that's a huge moment for his sister and their family. So I would be really bummed by that. And maybe Ron's disappointment in missing that came through. And that's why McGonagall let him off, let them off a little easier between that and then maybe wondering if some foul play actually was afoot. I do agree that it's completely uneven punishment, though. If you think about um, Harry doing magic at Privet Drive, which we know it wasn't even him, but how seriously they took that potential statute of secrecy break versus this in the, you know a few chapters later, huge breach with flying a car and letting all these muggles see it, including Miss Hetty Bayless. Um, they, it just doesn't add up that somebody from the ministry wouldn't immediately be at Hogwarts, like questioning them further. And it's a real shame that they probably don't have anybody else to corroborate their story about the platform barrier. It's a really good point. I, it's, I'm sure Dumbledore has to do a lot of cleaning up here that we don't read about. Mm. Like, why did two of your students fly a car all the way to school? <laughs> yeah. Not cool. And where'd they get the car? You know, I'd like to know more about this inquiry. Yep. Yeah. Poor Arthur. It also cracks me up. There have been multiple times in these first two books so far. I would wager to guess at least five at this point where Harry thinks it's all over for him. I'm going to be expelled. <laughs> I'm going to get in the worst trouble imaginable. Imaginable. I wish we've we've been keeping track of these because I've been thinking about this. There's so many times he's like, it's over. I'm done. <laughs> the it's over count. We should start it. That's over count. Yeah. You know, to the point we're making about whether or not McGonagall was being too soft here. Um, Justin is pointing out in the Discord that McGonagall gave Harry the Nibis 2000 in book one and secured his spot on the Quidditch team as a first year. So she clearly does have a bit of a soft spot for him. I think also as a teacher, her primary concern before discipline is making sure that her students are okay. Um, because what they just went through could have been, you know, could have been way worse than it was. They could have been gravely injured and they weren't. Um, so I think there's a level of relief that comes with that. But yeah, I think I think a lot of it is a soft spot for Harry a bit. But she still gives them a detention because Harry was not smart enough to use that Nimbus 2000 to get to I Hogwarts. Know. She's like, I gave you a I gave broom. You Why a did you dang use broom. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's also only 12. So, I mean, they haven't eaten since breakfast. I think it's good that she was feeding them and just, like Laura said, making sure that they're okay. For sure. All right, a couple odds and ends from this chapter. Uh, We talked earlier about how the Weasleys are late to the train station. It's because people keep forgetting things, uh, including Ginny, who forgets the diary. Yeah. (laughs) Which... uh, I think that, you know, the story would have been a whole lot different uh, if uh, the diary had stayed at the borough. (laughs) Well, and I think this goes to show that she was already using the diary. Um, Mm -hmm. Had she not begun using it, she might have completely forgotten and left it at home all year. So she was already at this point interacting with Tom Riddle. Yep. Another big uh, kind of important moment uh, from when the Whomping Willow attacks the Fort Anglia is Ron breaks his wand. Uh, and we know how important this is throughout the course of Chamber of Secrets, especially once we get to the end uh, of the book. This is the one moment where it's a security nightmare too far for me. Um, you cannot really have a student who's just in second year learning to use magic 
and have them have a broken wand um, that could misfire at any moment. That's as much a danger to Ron as it is to everyone else. I found myself wondering when I read this, does Hogwarts not have spare wands for events like this? I'm thinking about when we were all in school, schools tended to have some extra equipment, whether it was you were in music class and like, did everybody play the recorder in music yeah. class? Oh, in school, yeah. Right. So you could either buy your own recorder or you could rent one from the school. They kept those. They kept extra so nasty equipment for gym class. Them. Yeah. <laughs> we always bought our own. I mean, they, they were like five bucks. <laughs> like I wasn't going to be playing something that right. somebody had played for an entire year prior. But yeah, they they tended to keep extra equipment around in the event that somebody needed something, or at least there was an attempt to have extra items around. And I just find it funny that Hogwarts doesn't do this with wands. Well, I'll I'll do you one further. Dumbledore, who probably knows a lot more about all of this than what he's letting on, could have taken Ron's wand and repaired it using the strength of the Elder Wand, which we know repairs (laughs) Harry's own wand in the last book. So it can be done. He should have just been like, we said, give me a wand. (laughs) Well, and it's and the wand is such a critical item at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. You'd think that would be a top priority to make sure everybody's wands are in very good working shape. Yeah, it's questionable that Molly and Arthur don't replace Ron's wand because they think it's like a punishment, you know, for him or whatever like serves you right. And that's questionable, even in terms of like their parenting of him. But the why Dumbledore doesn't just fix it. It's kind of sad. Does Ron even tell them? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. Like, I don't think Ron even ever asks. He just thinks that's what they'll say. Molly and Arthur? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fair. But to your point, like he's going through all these different classes and like the teachers, like McGonagall notice. doesn't do anything. She could have helped him out. I I almost wonder if it's looked upon as being a punishment for what he's done. That's cruel, though. That's I cruel. think a bridge too far. Maybe the author just really liked the pun spellotape, which is very fun. Well, <laughs> well and this could so also like, be why Ron didn't come forward and ask for his wand to be repaired or for help because he was so ashamed that he broke his wand doing what he did to get to Hogwarts. I will bear this cross. Yeah. It's also a, a pretty necessary plot device for, it is. for Lockhart. Yeah. 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 A couple more odds and ends here. I'm not sure if it's the first reference in this book, but uh, I wanted to call out a petrified reference. So this is when Harry is looking inside of the Great Hall uh, at the sorting, kind of as him and Ron are peering through the window. And it said, Harry well remembered putting it on exactly one year ago and waiting, petrified for its decision as it muttered aloud in his ear. There's also another petrified reference uh, in the next chapter, which we'll talk about. And uh, of course, when Harry is in Snape's office, there is a reference, much like there is in the start of Sorcerer's Stone, that uh, Snape can read minds. But you have a good point uh, here, Andrew. Yeah, there is a little bit of a misdirect because there's the line, but a minute later, Harry understood how Snape could have known this as Snape unrolled the evening prophet. So it's a purposeful misdirect, I think. Like, yeah, Snape is probably reading uh, his mind to an extent, but we're also misdirected to think, oh, he just read the paper. No yeah, big deal. It's it's kind of like a does he or doesn't he that gets played throughout the entire series until ultimately in book five, we learn that yes, he does. Yeah. 
Well, uh, let's talk about somebody now who uh, would claim that he's able to read minds, but probably can't. Uh, chapter six is Gilderoy Lockhart. And uh, let's uh, kick off this seven word summary. Miranda, I'm, I'm trusting you here. Sure. <laughs> You're going to be great. Chaos. Ensues. When. Lockhart. Takes. Over. Class. Hey. hey! I like this one. <laughs> that one was so good. That one was so Credit good. Miranda, you set us up for success. <laughs> I tried. We're going to start our discussion about this chapter talking about howlers and herbology. So Ron receives a howler from Mrs. Weasley for stealing the car, flying it to Hogwarts. And what I think is probably more important, getting his father into a lot of trouble. Uh, and we see Harry feel terrible uh, that Mr. Weasley is facing an inquiry at the ministry. I was wondering, have we ever been in a situation where we've done something, and certainly what Harry and Ron do is not seemingly innocent, but for purposes of this, seemingly innocent, but it has serious repercussions for other people. Probably growing up, I'm sure I did something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely moments where like a cat's out of a bag or you spill a secret that you were like, you really did mean to keep. Um, and there's consequences for that. That's kind of what this feels like too, because Ron has kept the secret that like the flying car is questionably altered. It's lucky that for Arthur, uh, it there's that loophole that he wrote into the law. So maybe what he did really isn't technically illegal as uh dangerous as it is that's probably what allows him to keep the job but yeah i think that we've accidentally gotten each other into into trouble and mm -hmm. that is a, a worldly experience and uh you know we were talking in the last chapter about did did the punishment fit the crime so to speak but molly kind of you know she depances her own son in front of everybody here <laughs> <laughs> she makes it worse i think i think the 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 howler makes everything much worse for Everyone involved, uh, it actually exposes the entire Hogwarts uh, student body to more personal inner workings of the Weasleys, like the fact that Arthur's job is vulnerable. That's something that somebody like Draco Malfoy, you know, a bad actor, would would really jump on and seize the opportunity, especially because Draco knows his father is looking for every opportunity to discredit Arthur Weasley or stop the raids from happening. So somebody like Lucius would be begging for. Uh, and that inquiry to uh, basically take place, maybe an injunction on the raids until the head, the person running them is thoroughly investigated. This is all stuff that's well underway. And none of that ammo would be present if Molly hadn't sent the howler. I understand a woman's uh, or mother's uh, desire to reprimand her kid, but this is not well thought out and speaks to a level of impulsivity that is shared by Ron in, this, in the chapter prior. Yeah, I was wondering if she should have designated that howler to go to his dormitory, anywhere that wasn't the Great Hall, because now the entire school knows about Arthur's job potentially being at risk. I think ultimately she is trying to uh, shame Ron in front of his peers, which I think there there's something to be said 
for that, um, especially given the reception that Harry and Ron get when they go back to Gryffindor Tower the night prior. Everyone thinks what they've done is so cool. So Molly is really trying to show him the other side of what he's done and the the less glamorous side of what he's done, which I understand. But I, I do agree that it was impulsive for her to share that much about the consequences facing the family. Um, that could have been even a conversation they had through, we know, like the flu network, for example. Um, or she could have come to Hogwarts and booked some time to yell at him in an office somewhere. Maybe <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a lot time. of disused classrooms yeah. for child Maybe abuse. this is sure. why McGonagall went so easy on them, because she was like, oh, you just wait until your mother finds out. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent point. Yeah. She's always wanted to use that howler. Uh, I do appreciate that uh, in the movie again. It like the ho- the howler goes soft and says, "Oh, and Ginny, congratulations!" <laughs> right? Yeah, that's very nice. Like double sided nature feels more real, but this is very much a visceral reaction of Molly to her son's reckless rule breaking, and and it gives us insight also into Neville and how he has been treated too, because he mentions that he received one before from his uh, his grandmother, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's probably a better way that Molly could have handled the more personal aspects, but I wonder if this was already reported in the Daily Prophet. So it's not necessarily coming as a surprise to a lot of the students. That's an interesting question, especially because by then the government would have wanted to put out a statement uh, regarding it. Like maybe maybe the initial scoop flying Fort Anglia mystifies muggles caught the ministry with their pants down. But by the next morning, they'd be like, hey, regarding last night's breach of the International Statute of Secrecy, which, by the way, is very important not to flout. You got to hold on to that. Uh, We've identified the ministry official whose car it was, et cetera, et cetera. Like they would want to do a show of force and they would probably publicly out Arthur themselves. One of the other things I thought about, too, was, you know, Harry feeling the way that he feels. It's probably one of the first times he's felt this way. You know, the Weasleys are kind of like his family and and he's feeling emotions probably that he's not experienced for the first time in his life where he's feeling responsible for having put people who actually care about him in this really bad situation. This reminds me of how he feels when he lies straight to Dumbledore's face later. Um, Harry's going through like this next level of who do I really trust and and these people that care about me, what do I owe them? So it's an interesting struggle that I think Harry has throughout this book. So we get to spend time uh, in Herbology for the first time in the entire Yay. series. It took us till chapter six of Chamber of Secrets to make it here. I know Eric and Miranda are really excited because we get to meet Professor Sprout. I don't think we've met her. We maybe got a mention of her in Sorcerer's Stone, but we've never met her uh, before. And so we get a really great uh, introduction, and, and I wanted to mention we did do a, an entire episode on Professor Sprout uh, back on episode 513, um, appropriately titled, Why is Sprout so absent from Harry Potter? Uh, but she's very prominent <laughs> in this book. Um, so and I'm she's curious. our head of house. Yeah, I'm her. curious. What do you make of her? What do you make of your head of house, Eric, Miranda? You know, you know I kind of ask, and Miranda, don't hate me forever, <laughs> but I have to ask, the first time we see her, she's walking down from the Whomping Willow, and the Whomping Willow, in all of its fury, seems to have hurt itself while banging on the car, you know, trying to get Ron and Harry killed, smushed flat. Um, 
So she puts some slings around the Whomping Willow, but she herself has bandages all up and down her arms. This leads me to believe, of course, I couldn't bandage a Whomping Willow, but how good of a herbologist is she if she doesn't know about the weak spot on the Whomping Willow that would have allowed her to do her job much, much more easily? Uh, And did she just nearly die doing this? Like, that speaks to actually a lack of Come on, Dumbledore. Dumbledore could have told her, right? Dumbledore could not only could Dumbledore have told her, I think the staff up his lie count. If the staff really needs to interject, if a student is being crushed by that during normal business hours, they need to be able to stop the Whomping Willow as well. So not to mention a number of potions or spells that might have also done the trick, maybe not as well as the knot, but otherwise. So I hate to slander sprout but it does leave me a question like you know yeah she's had a run-in but i guess it was important not to show the hand of the whomping willow has a weak spot too early which comes into play the next book so i'm gonna i'm gonna come in here in defense of professor sprout i'm just looking at um the chapter here it says um Harry, Ron, and Hermione had only just joined them when she came striding into view across the lawn, accompanied by Gilderoy Lockhart. Professor Sprout's arms were full of bandages. To me, that implied she was carrying them, not that she had been injured and that she was bandaged herself. Oh, so she's just holding a bunch of bandages yeah. that she expertly wrapped around the Whomping Willow and uh, wasn't injured while doing so because she knows her stuff. Yeah, uh, that is the impression that I get here. That's interesting. I actually read it the same as Eric because I think right after that, that's where Harry, like, he signals that he feels really bad. And so that's what, like, implied to me that maybe she had been bandaged in some way, too. But It's worse for the wear. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way, Laura. Hmm, that is yeah. interesting. So, new listener poll. Uh, was Sprout beaten up by the Whomping Willow, or is she a badass who <laughs> totally bandaged that thing without taking one HP hit? See, the thing about Sprout, though, is obviously she's a very earthly person. I I would see her approach to the Whomping Willow, because I'm thinking about Snape, right? Snape just casts a Mobulus and renders the Whomping Willow unable to move. I don't see Sprout as taking that kind of an approach. I see her more as like caring about the actual Whomping Willow and maybe trying to interact with it a bit, um, almost in a motherly way. Um, so maybe that's why, because I don't think it's any different than like a Professor Kettleburn or, or, or Hagrid interacting with magical creatures, right? There's some risk, there's some danger in what they do, uh, but certainly Sprout could have been assisted by Dumbledore or Scabbers or yeah. somebody who could have helped her. I mean, we know Harry and Ron did a lot of damage to the willow. It wasn't just the branches. In the previous chapter, um, the willow was described as having its trunk bent from where the Fort Anglia hit it. So they did a lot of damage. I I think that um, Harry's guilt here is probably attributed to that because he is able, I think, to personify the tree a little bit more because it had a very human reaction to being unceremoniously crashed into. So seeing it off in the distance with its branches and slings, in addition to 
feeling guilty when he saw Dumbledore the prior night, feeling guilty about what's happened to Arthur. I think it's all compounding. That's a great, great point. And the tree is probably pretty pissed off, too. Would be. (laughs) I mean, Harry's going to keep a wide distance uh, from that tree now. Exactly. Uh, So in Herbology class, uh, they go and repot some mandrakes. And uh, I thought that it was interesting we're introduced to mandrakes, who we learn their cry is fatal to anyone who hears it. And later we're introduced to the basilisk whose stare will kill anyone who comes into contact with it. And one is seemingly used to cure the other, right? The mandrakes are used to cure those who have been petrified. So I thought that was a a little fun nugget. Yeah. But fun times in herbology class. We got people (laughs) passing out and we got plants screaming. And Oh, and if you don't wear the earmuffs, you're dead. Yeah. (laughs) They're really excited about this next level magic, this next level... uh level of herbology they're like oh greenhouse three there's a venomous tentacula in here we're all gonna die well uh herbology is not the only class i believe we get to experience for the first time uh in chamber of secrets so yeah let's get to lockhart and this is our first legit defense against the dark arts lesson isn't it well lesson in quotation marks Mm -hmm. because we know it goes a bit awry uh so Last week, uh, I know we talked a little bit about Gilderoy Lockhart, but there's a lot of great information on him on wizardingworld.com. Most notably, he is a Ravenclaw. It's our second consecutive Defense Against the Dark Arts professor who is in Ravenclaw House. So I'm sure there's some interesting things to talk about there. I feel like throughout the series, we just don't get very many positive representations of Ravenclaw. No, we really don't. Luna's about the only one. (laughs) That's true. This is erasure. I'm so sorry. But Flitwick's kind of cool. Yeah. We don't get to spend a ton of time with him, unfortunately. Gilderoy Lockhart, let's talk a little bit about his name origin. Oh, wait, let's enter the name origin chamber first. Secrets are being revealed. Yes. (laughs) J.K. Rowling had this to say about uh, Gilderoy Lockhart. The name Lockhart, well, I know it's quite a well-known Scottish surname, I found on a war memorial. I was looking for quite a glamorous, dashing sort of surname, and Lockhart caught my eye on this war memorial, and that was it. Couldn't find a Christian name, and I was leafing through the dictionary of phrase and fable one night. I was consciously looking for stuff generally that would be useful. And I saw Gilderoy, who was actually a highwayman and a very good looking rogue. I want to take a moment here because some listeners might not be familiar with this term highwayman. It's a historical uh, term that's sort of dated at this point, but it is a man typically on horseback who held up travelers at gunpoint in order to rob them. (laughs) Happy holidays, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, it's basically like a a carjacker or something, but for your horse and buggy. (laughs) I'd always thought of it as um, the name Gilderoy reminds me of Gilded, right? And given how gleaming his smile is and his perfectly styled golden locks, I thought it was a play off of that. But this just makes the, the interpretation here a bit deeper. I love that. If that highwayman was on a hill... My 2007 Civic Hybrid would totally get caught. 
by the highwayman. It would be game over. I thought you were going to say you would run him over. <laughs> no, my car would be like, I can barely get up the hill. <laughs> Give him all your money. I'm sorry, Andrew. All right. So some interesting information on Gilderoy uh, on wizardingworld.com. He was born to a witch mother and a muggle father with two older sisters. Uh, he was the only one of his parents' three children to show any magical ability. He was a clever, good-looking boy. Uh, and of course, he's a mama's boy, mother's unashamed favorite. And the realization that he was also a wizard caused him caused his vanity to blossom like a particularly pernicious weed. So another herbology reference there too, which I liked. Uh, oh. He valued learning not for its own sake, but for the attention it brought him. He craved prizes and awards. He lobbied the headmaster to start a school newsletter because he liked nothing better than to see his name and photograph in print. He received a week's worth of detentions for magically carving his signature in 20-foot-long letters into the Quidditch pitch. Uh, he managed to create a massive illuminated projection of his own face, which he would send skywards in imitation of the Dark Mark. Oh my god. Wow. He sent himself 800 Valentine's cards one year, which caused a pileup of owls in the Great Hall that <laughs> breakfast had to be abandoned. Far too many feathers and droppings in the porridge. Maybe that's a little oh my too gosh. much information. Isn't Valentine's <laughs> Day a big deal too in, in this book? Yes. Yeah, he makes a big deal out of it. Yeah. And this, this is uh, the part though that I found very interesting. We talked a little bit last week too about how Lockhart uh, might not have uh, been keen to return to Hogwarts if it wasn't for Harry, much like Slughorn in Half-Blood Prince. Um, but Albus Dumbledore's plans ran deep. He happened to have known two of the wizards for whose life's work Gilderoy Lockhart had taken credit and was one of the only people in the world who thought he knew what Lockhart was up to. Dumbledore was convinced that Lockhart needed only to be put back into an ordinary school setting to be revealed as a charlatan and a fraud. So Dumbledore knows that Lockhart is a fraud and he still hires him. Wow. Uh, this guy. Wow. Can we just up his liar count? I don't know. Maybe we just call him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is just. I mean, yeah. Dumbledore reckless count. Yeah. Choosing to subject your students to somebody who you know to, to a be fraud. a liar and a fraud. It's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> and man, just reading through these details of Lockhart's history, what a total egotistical nightmare. It doesn't speak well for Ravenclaw at all. No, it doesn't. No, but it's okay. We know that you two aren't like this. I hope not. <laughs> I hope you would tell me. <laughs> well, I mean, we get we get even more of a sense of, of Lockhart personality at different points in this chapter right yeah i mean i'm just wondering does he really think that winning five most charming smile awards is more impressive than banishing the darkest wizard of all time <laughs> is he actually de like delusional or just putting on some sort of persona he can't believe that somebody would have upstaged him at age one he can't deal it with it because he is yeah. so he has worked his whole life to attain the level of fame that he has, which is pretty substantial. If you really look at like Mrs. Weasley and everybody else who like has his books and, and reveres him. But yeah, he can't compete with Harry and he knows it immediately. So he has to play it off even to Harry's face that it isn't anything uh, at all to shake a stick at. Right. Yeah. He thinks that Harry flew the car to Hogwarts because he got a taste of fame when Harry uh, took a picture with him back in Diagon Alley at Flourish and Blots. It's such a way to take ownership of something that isn't 
yours at all into downplay it. It's like, oh, you did that because of me. Yes, I take responsibility. I'm amazing. Yes, I understand it. You got the bug. You got the bug, Harry. Yeah, I think it is at least in jest a little bit. But deep down, he is also jealous of, of Harry's fame. It is crazy to see the veil fall since we talked about um, Quirrell, you know, the Ravenclaw too, at the end of the year when Gilderoy is actually terrified about Slytherin's monster and leaves or packs up to leave, going somewhere. The Just his tone and everything he says really shows the, the man underneath kind of exactly like it does with Quirrell where he's not stuttering. And I think that that's, you know, to consult that scene would be to see kind of how Gilderoy's mind really works as opposed to this um, front that he's putting on when he interacts with Harry in this chapter and in the future. And he's like, he sees Harry as a threat, not just his credibility, um, but yeah, he just wants to insert himself in it as much as possible, which obscures the truth behind everything that everyone else is trying to do. Yeah, I mean, in fairness to Lockhart, though, Harry is in a really bad situation of being asked to sign autographs when Lockhart happens upon him. So that's not really uh, Lockhart believes what he sees, right? Like Colin wants an autograph from Harry. So he's like, Oh, well not only are you flying cars to school, you're asking, uh, uh, you know, younger students if they want your autograph, you know, like slow down, Harry. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that it's the worst possible moment for somebody like Gilderoy to come in. We come, and this happens multiple times. It's it's really just great because Harry is like so over it. <laughs> he's I think he's clearly projecting here because sounds like Lockhart would have loved to hand out his autographs at age 12. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, he also claims to have given Professor Sprout direction on how to heal the Whomping Willow because he's met several <laughs> of them on his travels, as you do, right? Uh, I would love to see him stand up against one Whomping Willow. <laughs> I would love to see this. And we don't know. Maybe Professor Sprout got hurt because Professor Lockhart was trying to help her. And <laughs> much like at the uh, Quidditch match when he tries to repair Harry's uh, arm. Yeah, the only reason Sprout got injured is because he was about to get walloped and she dove in front or pushed him out of the way. I think that he is trying to imply he actually is better than Sprout. I don't want you running away with the idea that I'm better at herbology than she is. I just happen to have met several of these exotic plants on my travels. Like, it's totally implying and nudging people towards thinking, oh, maybe, maybe he is better than Sprout. It's like it's like the when Norris is petrified. Oh, I knew just the spell. It's a shame I wasn't here on time. Yeah. You know, I could reverse <laughs> this. It's it's exactly that. It's like, well, you weren't, dude. Yeah, and it wasn't it said that um Lockhart was inspired by a real life person that the author knew. Mm-hmm. Um and what I love about that and also the way that he's portrayed in this book is that somebody like that does not have the level of self-awareness to realize that somebody might portray them in this way in a fictional novel. And I think we've all known someone like this at some point, obviously in real life. Um, they may may not be as exaggerated as Gilderoy Lockhart is here on the printed page, but I think we've all had our <laughs> run-ins with egomaniacs mm-hmm. and it, talking to them is like talking to a brick wall. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> I love that when J.K. Rowling was first getting fame for the Harry Potter books, uh, there were a number of articles that were like, man claims to be the inspiration for Gilderoy Lockhart, yeah. which, first, <laughs> which first of all is not a good thing. But there were, yeah. I think, multiple British men who like step forward and say, this was probably on me. I knew Joe when she was, you know, and it's just like, wow, the fact that they're coming out of the woodwork to claim this I like is amazing because you don't, you clearly don't understand what that says about you. Yeah. yeah. And it was never definitively proven who well, was anyone. Th- yeah. There's a difference between wanting to be Kenneth Branagh and wanting to be Gilderoy Lockhart. Maybe, yeah. they, <laughs> maybe they confuse the two. And I, I think she did say that the real life inspiration for this character would not know. Um, he he wouldn't be someone who would come out and recognize, oh, that's me. <laughs> right. That's a good point, too. So then who are all these other dudes who <laughs> are just like, oh, that was me, yes. Uh, well, I mean, nothing uh, says that better than the fact that he sets the pop quiz all about himself. But his his true nature is revealed, right? When uh, he sets the Cornish Pixies free and just like, eh, you know what? Harry, Ron, Hermione, you, you three can take care of this, right? But- Andrew, as you noted here, um, I think Ron is on to him. Yeah, he's immediately suspicious of Lockhart's authenticity because Ron says he says he's done these things in his books. And that's as far as I can tell so far, this is the first time somebody's really suspicious of what he says he's accomplished. And it's a good reminder that Ron knows what's up, too, sometimes. It's not always Hermione as the movies try to paint. Boom. So Boom. true. I was thinking of you, Laura. Thank you. I know you've brought that up before. I knew you were. Ron knows that a competent teacher really wouldn't have had this level of chaos. Like he, he just knows. Like Ron has seen, and he probably had reasons for wanting to spot a flaw in Lockhart when he sees that Hermione's schedule is covered in hearts. Um, maybe that gets some gears turning. But Ron is right. He, th- this, this was a, this was not controlled chaos. It was actual chaos. Yeah. And the difference there means that Lockhart is not a not a real person. Yeah. I mean, I think Ron has it right on point. I mean, you see him just fleeing from the classroom and just sort of as an afterthought, asking Harry, Ron and Hermione to just nip up the rest of the pixies. It, it seems pretty obvious from someone watching who doesn't necessarily have, you know, a preconceived notion of him who hasn't necessarily read his books as thoroughly as Hermione has to just really realize that there's something else going on here. And he just seems, I think he's a little delusional. (laughs) Yeah. And I was trying to think, you know, we talked about how he's a Ravenclaw, like what makes him a Ravenclaw? I guess it's his ability with charms, right? His, His ability to do memory charms is what is his defining characteristic. I'm sure you gotta be pretty smart to, to hoodwink all those people. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's a good writer too. I mean, just because he hasn't actually done the oh, things true. in his books, maybe they're actually a pretty good read. Unless he has a ghostwriter, which we wouldn't put past him. I wouldn't put right. that past him either. Very yeah. possible. Okay. So a few odds and ends for this chapter. I mentioned in the last chapter the petrified reference. We get another one here. Um, this is when the howler comes. It said Harry looked from their petrified faces to the red envelope. Uh so wanted to bring that up. And also that we meet Justin Finch-Fletchley and Colin Creevy, uh, both of whom eventually get petrified 
we meet them both in this chapter. Justin introduces himself to Harry during herbology, and then of course Colin wants Harry's autograph. And we also learn that they're both muggle-born without being explicitly told they're muggle-born, which is obviously key for this book. So we know that Justin tells the trio that he was accepted at Eton, which is a real elite muggle school. Um, there are some prominent people, including, you know, Princes William and Harry, who attended Eton that I think most of us are familiar with. Um, but he also convinced his mom that having a trained wizard in the family would be useful. Colin also speaks about his dad being surprised at him being a wizard, and he's trying to figure out how to send um, moving photos home to his dad so that he can see what life at Hogwarts is like. That's that's such a great, clever way of indicating their muggle parentage. And you you have a really great point here, Laura, too, about the camera uh, that Colin uses. Yeah, it's interesting because in, in both of these introductions, we're seeing literary devices that later come to the rescue. So with Justin, it's the Mandrakes, um, because he's in uh, the herbology class with the trio. He's actually working with them on potting the Mandrakes. And then Colin's camera, which he has with him everywhere, is ultimately what saves his life. Until Deathly Hallows. Uh, yeah, well, RIP. <laughs> Sorry. And then Eric, you you probably have the, the catch of the chapter. Of the series, maybe. Oh my gosh, yes. So there is a moment here where, get this, okay, drum roll please. Um, it is mentioned that the Hogwarts students take a shower or, ba or bath. They do exist. <laughs> the quote is, by the end of class, and this is Herbology, Harry, like everyone else, was sweaty, aching, and covered in earth. Everyone traipsed back to the castle for a quick wash and then the Gryffindors hurried off to Transfiguration. They do shower. We need we need like a washing sound effect. <laughs> no. Well, is this? I mean, I feel like that takes the the bathing count up to two for this series because yeah. there's this, and then there's Goblet of Fire when Harry's in the prefect's bathroom. Mm -hmm. Very few and far references between. I think that, or I tend to think that any reference to washing we find in these books has more to do with the girls' bathroom and. The chamber of secrets like it's setting up kind of the the chamber the fact that the chamber entrance is in the bathroom but nevertheless it's two of two times we know any of the students care about their personal hygiene in a direct way <laughs> there's just no time though i will say in that one in goblet of fire in the movie specifically was an awakening for me and so many other <laughs> i was gonna say <laughs> do you want to dig into that in a bonus muggle cast yeah do you care to explain i think we're out of time for today oh, so that's too bad. maybe once we get to goblet of fire <laughs> but all right so it's time for mvp of the week And I want to give it to Harry and Goblet of Fire. No, I mean, the Whomping Willow for being a victim to Dobby, Harry, and Ron's hijinks. This is an ancient and iconic tree and deserved better than having this very heavy vehicle thrown at it. And I'm going to give mine to the chapter, the Whomping Willow. I think that though we exposed some questions about Harry and Ron's path, it nevertheless is a really exciting chapter, which has uh, severe consequences and is very well written. I'm going to give it to Professor Sprout for not only being a boss lady, um, she's also prepared, even if it's unintentionally, 
doing uh, mandrakes as a lesson at this point ultimately sets her up to be able to save all of the petrified students at the end of the book. I'm going to give it to the Fort Anglia for getting Harry and Ron to school safely, kind of, sort of, maybe. Um, I mean, it was treated horribly by the Whomping Willow, and then who knows what is happening to it in the Forbidden Forest, but uh, it does <laughs> it does get two of the three safely to Hogwarts. That's a good one. I like that. I'm going to give mine to Neville. So I really liked that he was giving Ron moral support and advice when he had just received a howler from his mom. All right. If you have any feedback about today's episode, you can send an owl to mugglecast at gmail.com or you can use the contact form on mugglecast.com. You can also send a voice message. Just record it using the voice memo app on your phone and then email us that file. Or you can use our phone number, which is 19203Muggle. That's 19203684453. Next week on Mugglecast, we'll have our year in review and our 2023 look ahead. It's possible that is going to be our final episode of the year. We previously announced that we were going to be interviewing Mina Lima, but they had to unfortunately cancel for the time being. So we're hoping to do that in maybe the next month or so now. We're not sure when we'll be able to do that interview. So next week's episode might possibly be our final episode of the year, and then we'll resume chapter by chapter in 2023. And now it's time for some quizage. Last week's question, what was Mrs. Hetty Bayliss, a muggle, doing when she saw a flying car in the sky? The correct answer is she was hanging out her washing. Correct answers were submitted by Bort Anglia, <laughs> Buff Daddy, Disarm Not That Arm, Hayden B, Hetty Bayliss, oh, somebody said Hetty Bayliss, Legalized Gillyweed, Robin Tucker Music, Runa Waslib, Sir Properly Decapitated Podmore, Tabby Sylvia, and Elizabeth Kay. Next week's question. Which potion makes Madame Z. Nettles of Topsham, patron of Quickspell, the center of attention at parties? Submit your answer to us via the Quizich form on the MuggleCast website, MuggleCast.com slash Quizich. Do we have the Death Day party coming up? Is that why? We do. The next two chapters are... Mudbloods and Murmurs, and The Death Day Party. Hey, if you use Apple Podcasts to listen to MuggleCast for just $2.99 a month, you can now receive ad-free MuggleCast and early access to each new episode of the show right within the Apple Podcasts app. By subscribing to the show for $2.99 a month, you're supporting us just like our patrons do. You can still support us on Patreon, of course, and we'll get we'll hook you up with many more benefits there. But if you just want to do it right within Apple Podcasts, you can now do that. Again, $2.99 a month, and you'll get early access to each new episode as well as ad-free MuggleCast. No matter how you support us, whether it's through Apple Podcasts, Patreon, following the show, listening to every episode, telling a friend about the show, reviewing the show, the list goes on. We greatly appreciate your support. Also, make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode and leave us a review if they allow you to. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Another quick reminder that we'll have our live Ask MuggleCast Anything hangout this Saturday, December 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Pacific. And Slug Club patrons at patreon.com slash MuggleCast will be able to submit questions live. 
and everybody else will be able to stream the event live. So keep an eye on our social media channels for links to that. And speaking of Slug Club and our Patreon, Miranda, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great having you on and thanks for all your help with today's discussion. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. And we really appreciate your support for uh, so long. And Miranda comes to the Slug Club hangouts, too, that we do every month. Those are a lot of fun, right? Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoy getting a chance to hang out with you guys. Yeah, we're just chilling, talking Harry Potter, talking pop culture, talking about what's going on in the world. It's always a really good time. With that, thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. I'm Laura. And I'm Miranda. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Choo-choo, beep-beep, happy holidays. Choo-choo.